Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it, and I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity, and a mindset shift from I have to to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to, away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. Welcome to this week's Freedom Fridays podcast, episode 36. This is part two, actually, when I've had a conversation with Howard Tinker about some of the things he's overcome to get where he is. You know, a highly published author, highly successful entrepreneur, living the life beyond his early years dreams. And so we pick up the conversation and we talk about the label of dyslexia and how he overcame being told on many occasions that he was stupid. Please welcome to the next episode of the Freedom Fridays podcast. This is a good time to pivot to the dyslexia, Howard, because um, I want to share a story with you. So back in the UK and, and here too, I used to work for you know a success company and we would do seminars and hotels and it was predominantly around mindset. One of the things that we used to do right up front was to provoke people into remembering 20 words in order, forwards and backwards. Right. So you've got your Howard Tinkers in the room going, I can't do that. That's not possible. And then because of the way we did it, we did it in a very experiential way, you know, without going into too much detail, it became a story and you acted it out. And what blew people away, not whether they got 20 out of 20, but almost every single person got more than they thought they were going to get. And I've had, I remember one person specifically privately coming up to me and say, Pete, what you've just done, and it wasn't me, it was more the process, but what you've just done has changed my life because for years I've been told that I was stupid Mm. and you've just shown me a way that I'm not. Mm. When did you, when you were told you're a problem child, you're stupid, when did you get a sense the significance of that? I don't, because I was so young. It happened to me when I was six or seven. Um, Mm. I don't think I knew it was significant. I I just knew. uh, Initially, I I just didn't know what that meant, really. But then I started to have different experiences once that judgment had been made. So I got moved from the table. I don't know if you remember in infant school, you used to be like four of you around the table. So I I got moved from the good table to the difficult table. And then I got moved to the back of the class, basically, because I wasn't worthy of being taught, I guess, you know. So, and I wasn't a bad kid. It wasn't like I was doing bad things. It's just that I didn't contribute and I, I didn't follow the instructions. 
Um, so rather than have that problem right at the front of the classroom and disrupt everybody else because yeah. she's constantly having to teach me five times what everybody else got the first time, they put me to the back and whenever they asked questions, if, if my hand went up, I was never chosen. And it was really interesting. We got a relief teacher one day and he asked a question. I put my hand up and he chose me. And I was so shocked. I just put my hand up just to see, you know, just because I wanted to be involved and I didn't know the answer. And then he and then he got it that I didn't know the answer. And so he walked me through this long mathematical thing. I can't even remember if it was addition or subtraction. And he coached me, and we're going back many, many years, on how to get the answer. And I was so proud of myself. Wow. And then the other teacher came back that didn't like yeah. me. And, and so, you know, I get, but that, even at being like seven years old or eight years old, I can remember that moment when I was taken through a process and taught something that I could achieve. But the rest of it was like, um, you know, I was told so many times, stupid child, you know, stop, stop daydreaming. Um, right. right. And I actually did some work that I was very proud of. It was a poem about Bonfire Night, and I was only little. And I took it to the teacher, and she looked at it and said, you didn't, you didn't do this. <laughs> and wow. and I, as I got a little older, I went to middle school, so I was over 10. I couldn't spell, and I, I can remember in one, one class, a teacher making me stand up and spell somebody's name. And it's somebody that I had a very close friendship with and I misspelled his name. And I can remember not only feeling stupid, but feeling sad that I hurt him by not being able to spell his name. Right. Um, you know, he was a good friend of mine and, and he probably didn't even care. And he probably laughed along with everybody that I screwed up his name. But it, to me, my, my world was I just hurt somebody, but through my stupidity. Yeah. And I can remember in French being stood up and made to talk in French and I couldn't remember it because I can't, I've got no visual memory. So I don't even know my number plate and I've had my car for years. I used to have to have my mobile number written and stuck on the back of my phone in case anybody asked me what my number was because I can't remember. I have no visual memory for That's why I can't spell because if I say to you, how do you spell X? Microseconds, you will have a picture. Maybe yeah. you don't even recognize the picture but then you can spell it I don't get the picture so you know and and that's a deficit but I've learned to overcome it with coping mm. mechanisms which are yeah. fabulous and that I've learned later all my coping mechanisms are what's called accelerated learning and my coping me mechanisms is what other people get trained in so they can think in an accelerated way I've been thinking in an accelerated way since I was seven because mm. I can't think in the linear way that people are taught at school. Now, yeah. I'm not at school now. Maybe they're doing different things. Um, but, you know, that, that, that time in my life um, when I was uh, criticised and made to feel stupid for my inability to learn in the way they were teaching had a massive impact and you know to the point that I left school at 16 uh, factory fodder basically went straight into a factory um, and you know it could have been that I would have been there for the next 50 years um, I was I had insight that was the other thing I wasn't stupid 
uh, you know, I wasn't capable yeah. of doing academic study in the way that it was taught, but I wasn't stupid. And I remember vividly one day I was in front of this machine that I was working on and I looked at the ground and I was stood on a rubber mat and it was about uh, a meter and a half long and about a meter wide. And I thought, I am not going to stand on this for the next 50 years. And I can remember thinking that and, um, and then starting to look, what could I do with my life? And mm. um, made the decision that I was going to go grape picking in France. That was my solution. Yeah. I think everybody at the time wanted yeah, to go grape right. picking in yeah. France. Um, I think mean, I'd have got there and I'd have been bent over. I'm a tall guy, bent over for half a day, and I would have known that was a really bad idea <laughs> within half a day. But that was my solution. It didn't happen. Something else intervened. But um, I can remember vividly at, at, like, say, 17 years old, realizing this, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I can't be in a factory with very sexist, very racist men, Neanderthal kind of people yeah. stood on this mat getting covered in oil and dust. And, yeah, it just wasn't for me. I know that we've talked before about the work of uh, a chap called Howard Gardner, who was yeah. possibly one of the first to recognize and reverse the question, you know, how smart are you into how are you smart? Very different way of looking at it and giving hope to kids like you and probably me at that same, because I was probably more sporty um, in, you know, academically getting through school was if you had a good memory and you could count therefore you're probably pretty good at exams and therefore as a blunt way of saying you could kind of get through school whereas others have intelligence in different forms when did you recognize that you were smart but just in a different way um i wouldn't say i recognized that probably yeah so to answer your question probably maybe only a few years ago that i was smart but um literally I, a few years ago from today yeah maybe wow. wow seven or eight years ago but good i was good i i was i was lucky in that i found um one of my escapes from my uh childhood which was quite as i, as I said quite traumatic in a psychological way was that i went to the youth club at 13 years old, I went to the youth right. club and most of it was to avoid having to be at home in this hot house atmosphere where I was walking on eggs, not knowing what I'd done wrong, but I was often criticised for it. But yeah. if I could get out of the house and go somewhere, um, then that was good because then I'd come home, go immediately to bed and I don't have to be in this environment. So. Um, I used to go to the youth club and we were so lucky. We had this, this middle school that had just been built and they built a youth wing. So it had like the disco area and the coffee bar and table tennis and all of that. And it was just beautiful. And the, the, the people that worked there, men and women, were such lovely people that cared about kids. And I started to learn that I was a good person because they never wanted to judge me about my academic ability or lack of it. And it was more to do with who I was rather than what I could do. And so I started to learn that I was good. And they, I, it was funny, I got to like 
18 years old and they, they took me to one side with these youth leaders and said, you can't come anymore. <laughs> You're 18. You're not a youth. And but they said, would you like to volunteer or would you like to you know, become a youth leader? And so, you know, because I knew it wasn't going to be academic, I went on these experiential courses, fell in love with all of that. That was probably the first taste of personal development without me knowing. Right. Um, eventually, years later, I went and did a full year at night school to become a youth leader. Um, and I was given my own youth club um, as I finished, and it was in one of the most disadvantaged areas of Leeds. So Leeds is a working class town. Yes. And this was one of the most disadvantaged areas. Um, I won't which, which part? Which, well, okay, doesn't matter. I won't say it because it, yeah. I don't want anybody to be stigmatized if that's, yeah, that's where true. they are or that's where they grow up. But it was like second generation illiteracy, third generation unemployment, lots right. of crime, um, vandalism, all, all that sort of stuff. I used to have to park my car so far away in, so it wouldn't get vandalized while I was working in the club. So then I'd walk to the club from my car that was, and then I'd, work with the kids and uh my girlfriend at the time my wife now used to work with me so she she right. and I would work together there and um and I was able to bring this different masculinity to what those kids were used to so those kids were used yeah. to the hard end of masculinity I was yeah. able to bring this caring side I have quite yeah. a lot of feminine qualities I'm quite a caring person and yeah. and again I'm being stereotypical there and I apologize for that but what we know generally, um, yeah. I, I think I imbue quite a lot of the things that we value in, in female energy. Uh, I think I have a lot of that as opposed yeah. to the aggressive masculine energy. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to demonstrate that with these kids and I was brave at times. Like I, I took away their equipment because they didn't pack it away. And these were kids that could riot. You know, these weren't <laughs> sensitive little flowers. Um, I knew what was going on when I walked in the place for the first time. And instead of like table tennis and pool and snooker, there was a, a, a boxing bag hung in the middle of the place right. with somebody's face on it. <laughs> right. You know, it was that kind of place. <clears throat> and I remember we, we took all that away and they came in and they went, where is the whatever it is that they wanted? And we said, well, you didn't put it away last time. We told you if you didn't put it away, we weren't getting it out oh, what are we going to do then? And we sat them down in the coffee bar area and we sat and talked and we got some modeling clay and they were talking and playing with that. And I said to them, look, if we're not going to do this, what would you like to do? And they said, could we go to the cinema? And I said, I'll see what money we've got. And if we get, yeah, I'll take you to the cinema. Uh, that mm. was so funny. M many of them have never been because they were poor. Yeah, so we took yeah, them yeah. to the cinema in a minibus and they were so excited, they got up on the stage at the front with the film going and they were dancing and things like that. Just <laughs> so, I mean, it probably annoyed the hell out of everybody else, but it was so lovely yeah. to see these kids celebrating something, you know, that yeah. had been withheld from them. Yeah. And we took them ice skating and so on. And we ran out of money. And they, then they'd come back and say, can we go X? And I'd say, we haven't got any money. And, and they'd go, oh. And, and I said, shall we work out how to make money? And, and we ran jumble sales and things like that. And I actually got yeah. a couple of them onto the board. 
So the, all these old footy duddies were on the board. I actually got a couple of the kids on there and we, I'd go with them and we'd talk through the agenda and so on. And by the end of, after we'd left, Bev and I had left, two of those, one, one of those kids was working in accounts in, in a, a plumbing business. Another one was working in a bank. Another kid was running his own business. Now, these were kids that were destined to failure. And I'm not saying I'm the only one that was involved, but I think what Bev and I did and the other workers there were was we gave them an alternative to, you know, what other men in that area probably yeah. would have done. And, yeah. I, and I, I think this is a pattern that's gone through my life is being a pivotal, 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 pivotal person because um, I've had them in my life. I've had people that have turned up and done mm. something or said something or taken me through a period mm. of my life and it, and it changed. And I think youth workers were the first ones. And then I, I, from youth work, I went into working in children's homes and I met this guy called Les Clark. Um, and he said to me, you were really good at this. And I was like, what? And he said, those kids would do anything for you. This was in, in children's homes. He said, um, you really inspire them. We struggle to get them to do things and, and you have a way of influencing and inspiring. And he said, you really should be beyond this. You need to go to university and qualify. Mm. And I was still stupid, remember? Yeah. <laughs> and I do that with inverted commas. So I, I said to him, I can't go to university. And I explained, you know, what, what a failure I was at anything academic. And he was saying, you know, university is not about that. It's about you learning and demonstrating these skills and abilities. And I, and I just put it off and put it off. And he harassed me for so long that in the end I went, oh, go on, then I'll go. And he helped me fill in the forms and sent them off. Yeah, and and I went and I got there, and I was still in the mindset of being stupid. You know, I, I thought that I was going to get thrown out, and at the end of the first year, I was getting distinctions and so on, and I convinced myself that they were giving me somebody else's marks. <laughs> I know, I know, it sounds funny, but yeah. if you truly believe something hard enough, you will. Yeah, you will You'll find the evidence to prove it. Or you will discount evidence that says something opposite. Mm. You know, um, Howard, do, 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 you, do you have a view to what extent your upbringing, your labelling of being dyslexic, and whether that's true or not, or it was just a different form of intelligence, do you have an, a view to the extent to which that shaping has helped you connect with others who are less than perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I do. I also think the bullying that I, I encountered through teachers that bullied me as well as uh, my dad, as well as other kids, allowed me to have empathy for people that are downtrodden um, or disadvantaged. Um, when I was working through the very dark areas of my social work life, so with some of those um, of the worst crimes, the thing that I had to do was have empathy with people that no one wanted to have empathy for. Right. But the only way to reach someone 
is to be able to to see them to, yeah. to say i see you and to say I, I i don't judge you i judge your behavior not you don't say this but the, yeah, you yeah, be yeah. Able to go yeah to the darkest place and say it's all right i see you yeah. you know it's okay and i'm sure you've done worse than we're talking about and just yeah so and, and we come back to our almost the start of our conversation around acceptance yeah. yeah, and I remember I remember writing about this recently. Um, it was a film that my daughter actually introduced me to. I didn't really know anything about it, called Just Mercy. I yeah. think it, oh, I think it's Brian Johnson. I'm not sure, but he was a a lawyer who would defend oh, yeah. people on on I think death row. I might might have got that wrong, but what he said was, which really is a confronting thing to consider we're more than the worst thing we've ever done mm. which oh, obviously yeah. in certain situations extreme situations that's challenging in many many ways mm-hmm. but for you and you know i i've i've certainly done some things but i'm not proud of and i kind of got a more than that and i'm sensing what you were able to do for those kids and adults is you were a, a beacon of hope that, yeah, I'm, I can be more than the worst things I've ever done or the worst labels I've ever been given or despite you thinking I'm stupid, I can be more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can be that pivotal person that yeah. I had them throughout my life. I've had them and I can be that for other people. Um, and so maybe, you know, a quick acceleration on to today, you know, the, the life that you live today. I, I know that you're immersed in coaching and helping people and being pivotal, pivotal, <laughs> I can't even say it now, pivotal for other entrepreneurs. Um, here is a guy who's written a number of books, one of which, you know, bums on seats, which is just the most uh, electric, curious, novel title and you're immediately going to open up that how do you go from being labeled dyslexic to working in youth work to being an entrepreneur that writes a book called bums on seats it's more bums on seats actually but um, (laughs) apologies yeah you're right um i think so the reason that i wrote the book i went on a course about growing my business and one of the elements of it was that you will improve your stature in the market if you are published and so the part of that course was that you write a book so let me now set that as a a bookmark and let's go back a little bit when I started doing personal development 25 years ago from now um, one of the things that we were taught um, and I know that you like to know what people's maxims are that they live by, but one that I was taught, which I live by, is my word is law in my universe. My word is law in my universe. (laughs) So if I say I'm going to do something and I don't do it, then what I've just done is corrupted something inside me. Yeah, We're we're exactly the same. My inner world now knows I'm not trustworthy. So I always now, when I say always, most of the time now, when I say I'm going to do something, 99% of the time I'll do it. Even if I'm halfway through it and working out, I don't like this. I'll do it just to get to the end of it because 
I feel that the process of doing what I said, showing up who I truly am, keeping my word to myself, to the world, to the other person, is more valuable. That's so valuable than the hour or two or three of doing the thing I'm not enjoying anymore. So I can get to the end of the content, but the context of keeping my word is so important. So when I went on that course to help my business and I said I would do the book, I actually posted on Facebook, and you could probably look back if you really wanted to, but I posted on Facebook that I was doing a 30,000 word challenge and I would be writing a thousand words a day and I posted it out, not knowing who was gonna see it. But the thing was, it was out there and I'd given my word. And so I was up at five, 5.30 every single day for 30 days and I wrote a thousand words a day and I wouldn't get up from my chair until there was a thousand done. And and I kept doing that for 30 days and there was well over 30,000 and my book was written in 30 days. Um, how did I do it? I think one of the things about me is because I don't have the abilities that are taught in school about how to write properly or structure things properly, I've got a very good narrative way of being. So, you you know, I, I know you're supposed to talk on this podcast and I, I realize I've taken up about 70% of the air, but that's the way that I am. And so when I sat down to write and I let go of any expectations of it being, you know, Charles Dickens and just got on with the writing, it just flowed out and repeat all the things that I'd learned about marketing and about restaurants and about influencing other people. It just flowed out of me. The, the thing that I had, though, was a really good teacher. There was a guy called Andrew mm-hmm. Griffiths. He's not the guy that wrote the kids' stories. He's a business yeah. writer. And he gave me a process yeah. um, to write the book. So I'll do it really quickly for people in case anybody's only interested in writing a book. And he basically said that you get a mind map and you put the central theme in the middle. And the central theme for restaurant owners is how do I get more people in the restaurant? Yeah. Right? And then the next thing that you're going to write is your introduction. So who are you and why should they listen to you? And then the next thing is, um, and then I stopped and I had like a million ideas of what could be the next thing. And and he was stood there and I said to him, how do I know what to do right? I I could tell them this or this or this, but what comes first? And he said, if I was a restaurant owner, I sat down to you and said, Howard, can you help me? What's the first thing should I do? And I went, oh, that's easy. It's mindset. And he said, all right, that's chapter one. And once I've got mindset, what's the next thing? Oh, that's easy. I need to teach you what marketing really is, not what you think it is. Hmm. And then what? And so basically he gave me these steps and there was about seven steps. And we just, I just mind mapped out what would go in each of those steps. And by the end of it, I had so much on this mind map that if I ever hit a speed bump, I would look up at the mind map and go, oh, yeah, that. And then I'd start writing again, and it just flowed out. Mm. And what I realized is, I mean, it stumbles out of my mouth, I'm a really good writer. I could write easily write a book every six months if I wanted. Um, I have so much in there that's just waiting to spill out. Normally I do it in talking, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that's how it happened. Number one was my word is law. And number two is having a good teacher. And number three is just allowing the process to, to come through. Mm. I would, I think that's really helpful. 
And as I reflect on one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to turn up every week and the value I get for, for me in just committing to doing it and doing it. As, as you and I have talked about, I have no idea where this is going to go and it doesn't have to go anywhere. But the fact that I can get to the end of this year, 2021, and say, yep, I turned up every single week, 52 times I turned up and I recorded something and I gave it away. Um, the same with my kind of weekly whispers blog. And so that's, we have a very similar uh, modus operandi there and, you know, our word is our bond. And so I find myself sometimes not committing to too much because I know once I do, that's it. I'm kind of all in for that commitment. So I think that that short, you know, one, two, three tips. And we know that working on ourselves is beyond, here's the seven tips to working on yourself, right? It, it's more just, you know, tidbits and snacks to almost get us interested and to go a little. We know it's much deeper than that. The, the thing that I learned throughout my life, basically because of labeling that I endured when I was younger, is that it can turn into a belief. And once you've got a belief, that becomes like a filter that you look at life through. So if I believe I'm stupid, then I'll look at whatever's in front of me and going and I'll say well I'm not going to understand that you know so that's just one example but in order to grow you have to dismantle those beliefs and yet as much as those beliefs might be damaging or limiting they have benefits so my belief about being stupid it gives me the benefit of saying to my wife I can't do the accounts can you do them yeah or I'm not going to stand up and make a fool of myself because I know I'm going to stand up and make a fool of myself. So I'll sit down quiet and let other people take the risk. So I don't have to take the risk. So the benefit is I get to hide, I get to delegate. Um, we've got all the evidence we need with that belief that I am incompetent and stupid. I've got years of evidence of that if I want to choose it and see it that way and I can use it as a tool to avoid responsibility. The growth comes when you say, I am willing to dismantle this and give away those benefits into grow in, and grow beyond that belief. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's why death's very important. Death of a loved one or a divorce or a failure, business failure, whatever. They are very important moments in life from a growth point of view because a lot of what you believe about yourself is reflected you know, if it's a wife or a parent that leaves in one way or another, you took, you have certain beliefs about yourself based on what's reflected back from those people. When they're gone, there's a very vulnerable time when those beliefs can be addressed. And I think, you know, that that's why people jump out of airplanes or they jump, bungee jump, or they do things that are dangerous because I think for moments or hours, there's an opportunity to develop a new me out of those, those crisis situations, if you like, life yeah. and death situations. Yeah. Um, and so the working on myself, you can't do it with a piece of paper. You can't do it with seven tips because you're looking at the seven tips through your filter, your belief that mm. you have to have, you have to have a teacher. I think you have to have a coach and they have to push you beyond what you don't want to do. And so yeah. the teacher 
student relationship in that has got to be very clean. It, uh, the teacher has to be a very clean mirror. It's no use looking in a mirror that's an ego that's doing it for their own purposes yeah. because it's a faulty mirror and they might reflect back to you, no, you're not doing that right, but that's about them having their ego needs met. You need somebody who's worked on themselves at several levels beyond you, who is kind enough to take you on as a student and then standing in front of that mirror when they say, you need to do X and everything in your being is screaming, I don't want to do X or I'm scared to do X. And they're strong enough to say, am I not your teacher? Yeah. Without ego, just a mirror reflecting back to you. Mm. What's going on for you around X? What are you telling yourself around X? Mm. You know, what, what capabilities are beyond X that you're not willing to reach out and take hold of? So you need, you need a teacher, um, you know, and personal development is, you know, for me is, um, I'm just going to silence something that started happening there. Personal development for me is about that. It's not about the seven tips to become wealthy or yeah. Yeah. You know, loved by other people. It's about working on myself and having somebody there that can reflect it back. I can't do it for myself. It's, it's not yeah. self-development because I'm a dirty mirror for myself. Yeah. I need someone who has done the work before me. And I think that's where you and I and other coaches and mentors come in. They become those pivotal people that are willing to say the things to the student they're willing to say the things that could get them rejected. So they put their vulnerability on the line to say the thing you don't want to hear. Mm. Because the, the, the good reaction is, who the hell are you to tell me to do this? Who are you, the hell are you to judge me in that way? That's mm. the student talking. And so the teacher's got to be brave enough to hold his or her space and be willing to say the things that the student doesn't want to hear in order that the student wrestles with it and then grows through it. So, um, you know, I think that you can't do it with the three ways to on the seven ways. Yeah. Um, Howard, I'm conscious of time and I'm really grateful for your time. And there's been, that's gone really quickly. There has been so many examples, and tips and tools and questions and things that I think people will pick so many things from that. Um, what came to mind with the last thing you said was one of the, the maxims that I started my business with was when, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And I believed that throughout my life. And the teacher doesn't necessarily have to be a person. It could be a book. It could be a movie. It could be, a, an, it could be anything. If we're looking for it, we'll, we'll find it, assuming that we're ready. So for anyone that's listening, thank you for being, if they're ready, perhaps one of their pivotal teachers. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, Howard, I always finish with some, uh, perhaps a lighter couple of questions just to kind of surprise you and keep you on your toes. So if we, if we can do that, I'll be, I'll be grateful for your time. Um, what's, uh, what empties your soul? Well, can you rephrase that question? <laughs> okay. What, uh, what pisses you off? Um, 
God, that's a hard question to answer because I'm working on myself to not be at the effect of things. Yeah. I know I sound like a princess saying that, but um, so the the when somebody is hurtful, purposely hurtful to someone else, yeah. uh, I think that gets under my skin. Um, however, there's that part of me that then wants to understand what's going on for that person yeah. that needs to be hurtful. But I think, you know, when I can see somebody doing something that is they know is going to be damaging and they do it anyway, that, yeah. that, that gets under my skin. And so on the opposite side, what's something that gets you going creatively? What kind of fills your soul? Um. Well, it's, it's actually the opposite. When somebody is willing to give to someone else who has no way of repaying them and, and lift that person up. So I can see, you know, as silly as it sounds like the voice or something where someone's so nervous and they do their thing and they get lifted, you know, yeah. the TV show, or it could be like watching you know, a documentary or, or watching a little snippet of something where somebody's just been incredibly kind to someone for yeah. no other reason that kindness and love is the way. You, know? you said you live by the beach. Are you more sunrise or sunset? I'm more sunrise these days. I used to be a night out, um, but I, I'm done by 10 o'clock now. Uh, and, 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 you know, we're we're in the spring at the moment, so the light's starting at 5.30 and, yeah, yeah, and my yeah. eyes are starting to open and I'm ready to go. What's your favourite Yorkshire word? Um, love. <laughs> I, I didn't know, know that, anybody in Yorkshire did that. Yeah, well, we. so I'd say uh, to you, Pete, um, hey, love, how are you going? So I'd say it to oh, a man, okay. I'd say it to a woman, I'd say thank Good you, man. love. Which, you know, it, it can get me into trouble here because it, it's yeah. seen as potentially sexist. Yeah. However, it's just part of my culture and upbringing that everyone's love. And it's just yeah. a sweet thing that Yorkshire people say to, yeah. to other people. And final question for me, Howard, what's a book that's changed your life? Um, the War of Art, which is by Stephen Pressfield. It's not the art of war. It's the war of art. Okay, um, yeah. It's about resistance, and Stephen Pressfield is an author. Beyond this book, he's an author, and what he talks about is that when you enter the field, the gladiatorial field of creativity and putting yourself out there, that resistance crops up inside you, um, and it will give you every excuse on the planet, including illness, you know, pestilence, earthquakes, yeah. you know, You'll end up drunk when you should have been working. All those things, resistance will throw all these things at you to stop you doing a higher level of work and, and working on yourself. Your job is to overcome resistance. So in, in my world, we call resistance it, IT, the inner terrorist. So you know it will get in there and, and undermine you. It will cause you to have an argument with your wife so that you can't think straight afterwards. And yeah, it's an amazing book at looking at it and how it controls us instead of us controlling ourselves. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. It's only thin, you know, the, sometimes the chapters are only half a page, 
but I definitely recommend it to anybody who's interested on working on themselves and being able to overcome that that inner inner self-talk or that self-saboteur. That's what the book's really about. Howard, I think that's a really great way for us to pause our conversation, certainly the recording of, because I'm no doubt we'll we'll chat further. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Even more gratitude for your transparency, and I'm sure there are many uh, overt and covert lessons and insights that people will get when they listen to our conversation. Oh, you're welcome, Pete. And uh, I hope it's, it's useful to people. Thanks, Howard. Thank you.